Hey, do you teach yoga? Have you ever trained to lead yoga classes to be a yoga therapist? Have you ever owned a yoga studio? Maybe even just wondered what it was like for the women and men up there in front of the room on their mats, leading you through endless Surya Namaskars, down dogs, and pranayamas galore? Well, these are their stories and mine. I'm Rebecca Sebastian, a 20-year yoga teacher, 10-year yoga therapist, yoga studio owner, and co-founder of a yoga-focused nonprofit. I've done a lot in the yoga world over the last 20 years, pretty much everything except had a water cooler. You know, a place to share stories, talk about struggles, successes, and find other people who do the same thing that I do. Welcome to Working in Yoga, a podcast and substitute water cooler for yoga folks to connect and build community, to share our unique profession, our challenges, and our journeys with the world. Welcome to Working in Yoga, friends. It's Rebecca here, and I am so thrilled to introduce the second of the Puja Chronicles this week. So originally when Puja and I recorded, we were batch recording, right? So a few episodes at the same time. And this we thought was going to be our first episode, but turns out it is our second episode. This week we are talking all about yoga professional organizations, We lob a few shots at the Yoga Alliance specifically, I do, and Pooja talks about her experience with Kripalu, Uh, but really what I want to talk about on this episode, what I want you to listen for, is our discussion about industry, professional organizations, the power dynamics that are at play within the industry, and really the takeaway of some really easy and simple things that we can do to advocate for ourselves within the industry. Now, in the meantime, if you ever want to go support Pooja and her work, go head to PoojaVarani.com. And if you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can head to WorkingInYoga.com and support both of us that way. So take a listen. This is a really good episode. And I'll chat with you on the other side. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Working in Yoga. Okay, so this episode starts a series that I'm really, really excited to share with you. In my brain, it's being called the Pooja Chronicles. So my friend Pooja Varani is on the podcast with me today, and Pooja and I are going to talk all things yoga industry. We connected together when Pooja very graciously taught for a yoga conference in the Midwest that my nonprofit ran. And so now we're going to start talking yoga industry stuff on the podcast. So Pooja, if you will please introduce yourself and tell everybody who you are. Hi, Rebecca. My name is Pooja. My pronouns are she and her, and I'm coming to you from Monahoke land. So the Plains, Virginia, about an hour outside of DC. And I wear two hats within the yoga world and within the outside world. One is a pain-free movement specialist. I got very obsessed with pain, physical pain, chronic pain, tension, aches, and the strategies we can use from yoga, from functional fitness, from different types of movement, as well as pranayama meditation to address what I'll call the physical trauma in our bodies from being alive in this age and era. And the second hat that I'm wearing, which I'm bringing out today is a social justice consultant. So I have a background in nonprofit management and international development. 
And I quit because of burnout several years ago and jumped into yoga and then quickly realized that yoga is political and we are not separate from these issues that affect us in other industries and exist in society and the world as a whole. Ooh, I love that. First of all, I love the title social justice consultant. So I'm going to get you a t-shirt. So when I see you in person, you have a t-shirt that says social justice consultant. That's wonderful and amazing work. Thank you for doing it. Thank you. Let's dive into our topic for today, Pooja. Are you ready? I'm terrified and stoked all at once because (laughs) I'm a little worried we're going to get some negative backlash, but I feel like what we need to talk about needs to be said. And a lot of us are thinking about it anyway. So we might as well just put it out in the universe and start these conversations. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Pooja and I today are going to talk about the Yoga Alliance And I will tell you all that we have been working this Google Doc between us about the things we were going to talk about on the podcast. And the title that I wrote, and I will own this title, is Yoga Alliance Screwed With and Screwed Without. So let's start talking about professional organizations in yoga. And I will say I had the opportunity this past weekend to host a panel discussion where we invited all of the professional organizations in the yoga industry, the Yoga Alliance, the International Association of Yoga Therapists that I am going to always shorten to IAYT, and the new kids on the block, Yoga Unify. And Yoga Alliance chose not to come to the panel. And the facilitator of the conference told me that I could talk about that because she had been talking to the Yoga Alliance for a year about this panel. And they had agreed, 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 agreed. And two weeks before the event, they refused to come. And without divulging too many of the details, essentially, I want to talk about them and why that means that we can't have nice things in our industry. Absolutely. And when you told me that they couldn't come that kind of shocked me because it seemed like it was a convention or a conference of all of these big organizations, organizations that really regulate and oversee yoga. So can you speak a little bit more about that? I mean, what you can talk about. Yeah, so I absolutely will. Um, And part of that is that before Pooja and I pressed record on this, I want to tell you that I was on GuideStar slash Candid's website pulling up the 990s for the Yoga Alliance. For those of you who are not familiar with how to research how much money an organization has, you can go to GuideStar or Candid, they're together now, and research organizations. And I have access to the 990s from the Yoga Alliance's public information from 2017, 18, and 19. So I want to talk about how much money they have and contrast that with the fact that they couldn't get on a plane to talk to people within our industry. The first 990 that you pull up from 2017, I think is the most interesting because it also has the numbers from the prior year of 2016. And the net assets of the organization were $10 million $342,659 for 2016. And in 2017, they jumped to $16,112,000 for 
$953. So that's almost a 50% increase in net assets between 2016 and 2017. Now, for those of you who were in industry at that time, you will remember that that was almost like this fulcrum point where we had all come to a fever pitch of wanting to discuss sexual impropriety, accessibility of our yoga asana practice, as well as cultural appropriation. And it is interesting to me that there was such a huge shift in putting money in this organization that really probably topped out at that 16 million from what I can see over the last 2016, 17, 18, 19, they consistently stayed about $15 million, but couldn't get on a plane to talk to us about the future of our industry, which I find kind of interesting. I don't know how you feel, Pooja. It it kind of seems to me that we're going to dive into this a little bit more, but I've always had my problems with Yoga Alliance because as a so this is an auditory podcast, so people, folks can't see me. Maybe maybe you might see a picture of me on your screen, right? But I am of Indian descent. My parents were born in India and I was born in the US. So yoga runs deep within my family. So coming from this person of color background, it's always seemed odd to me that this group of mainly white Americans have decided that they regulate yoga. And then having appointed themselves the regulators of yoga, that they're not participating in this conversation about regulation, about our parameters of yoga, about teacher trainings and what constitutes yoga teaching. I mean, that strikes me as odd. Does that strike you as odd? Um, Yes, most definitely. So, and I will own right now, I have never been a member of the Yoga Alliance. I have been 11 years a yoga therapist. And for a lot of years, the Yoga Alliance took stance against yoga yoga therapy as a profession and actually stance against, against yoga teaching as a profession in any way. So that you all as listeners know where my money is, it is not in the Yoga Alliance, but I do pay the IAYT money every year. And I'd like to echo that because I've been, uh, the past couple of years, I've gone from just being a regular yoga teacher to being a yoga teacher trainer. And there are advantages to having a Yoga Alliance certification when you're teaching other teachers and participating in yoga teacher trainings or offering continuing education credits. And I haven't been a member for many years. I was a member initially for the first year and then found that I wasn't getting the benefits that I felt I was paying for. And also the guidance or even the conversations, which only recently have shifted to these important topics that we're talking about today or cultural appropriation or trauma or the things I really wanted to dive into as a yoga teacher. Yeah, it is interesting that the more I go into the community of yoga teachers and yoga therapists, how hungry we are as an industry for somebody to hold accountability to the humans who are behaving poorly within the industry. And and I think that's an important conversation that I am excited to hear your thoughts on, Pooja, because in my brain, I don't want somebody to hold yoga as a tradition and spiritual practice accountable, like that's perfect. And it certainly is not the job of anybody who lives in the West to talk about or regulate yoga 
as a spiritual tradition, but we have so much money floating around within our industry at all accounts. And again, I think this is 2017, 2018 numbers, 44 billion with a B dollars that are within our industry. And there does need to be some professional organization there who takes a stance against impropriety of all kinds. We need somebody. And I don't see the Yoga Alliance doing that. I find that they often shy away from topics. And I don't know if this was intentional, but in a way it has been. I've been involved with conversations with them since I had my first yoga teacher training. And it seemed to me that there was a lot of falling in line. And when I had very transparent conversations with folks without realizing that they worked for Yoga Alliance, they said, well, you're raising all these questions none of us are talking about. And some liked that and some didn't but it seems like they weren't further seeking out those conversations. And only in the last year, I was I gave a talk about LGBTQ representation and Susanna Barkataki was on there and Sham Ranganathan was on there. These are all folks who are working for social justice and yoga. So if you're to look at their most recent things, it seems like, yeah, of course, Yoga Alliance is doing all of this, but uh, in a way it kind of feels like they're covering their... Um, a blank blank. <laughs> They're covering <laughs> themselves, right? Because there's been so much demands, especially in the wake of 2020 and all of the racial justice issues that they have to pay some verbal credit to it. But it seems like more of a response than an actual taking an initiative with this industry that needs it. Ooh, yeah. I mean, that is... <sighs> In my mind, and, you know, I've given a lot of mental energy to the idea of what a professional organization does in general for any organ for any industry and specifically what we need a professional organization to do or what I would hope a professional organization would do. And there are absolutely in other industries, professional organizations that are doing exactly what the Yoga Alliance is doing. If you're a member, you get discounts on insurance and in our case, pants and other things like you join for cheap continuing education and discounts at different places. And that to me seems to be the Yoga Alliance point of view. But unfortunately, that also means that we have no professional organization that is addressing the clear issues that need addressing. I mean, it, it's still to this day, it boggles my mind that if I was a yoga teacher that misbehaved in my yoga studio towards a student, I could literally pick up shop and go to the next town over where no one knew me and start again and do the same thing over and over again with no professional repercussions. I mean, somebody could call the police and I could go to jail if I was behaving inappropriately, but there was no professional repercussions. Like, how is that a thing? I really don't understand that. And I kind of wanted to shift topics, but continue on that topic, right? Because yeah. the, the place where I did my first teacher training, which was the Kripalu Center for Yoga and Health, they, like many yoga teachers and many yoga organizations, have had scandals. But the only time that interest was, that there was interest, interest shown in those scandals because there were a number of sexual scandals, not with Swami Kripalu himself, but with his student, Amrit Desai, who started the U.S. organization. Yes. There was no follow-up about the sexual scandals. However, there was follow-up when he was embezzling money. And I feel like 
you and I have had this conversation earlier, but it seems like these organizations only move to punish folks and to look into the behavior when it relates to finances and not when it comes to sexual assault or physical hurt or even emotional manipulation. Yes. Oh, I want to pause so that y'all can process what Pooja just said is that people are held accountable for the money and not for the other poor behavior, sexual assaults being specifically one of them, but emotional manipulation, like that times a billion. There's so much of it and it's just unrecorded largely. Yes. I mean, one of the things that is has always been on my mind, and, and this will, will shift into Kripalu, but the Yoga Alliance is our main regulator for teacher training programs. And I find it absurd in our industry that you train at a particular yoga studio and then go to work for your sacred teacher. Like, how is that not emotional manipulation 101? Like, you should not have to defend your job to the person who shared a spiritual practice with you. Ever. It's, I really, I just had a thought and uh, I'm a little, forgive me for saying this, especially audience, forgive me for saying this. Um, But the image that just appeared to me is the problems that have happened in the Catholic church. Ooh. Yeah. And again, I mean, I want to separate, I call myself a spiritual mutt. I honestly believe in every religion, but there's a difference between religion and organization. There's a difference between the sayings and the teachings of Christ and Allah and Krishna or the Buddha and the actual organizations that are created and like organizations have bureaucracy and money. So within Catholicism, what came to mind was that manipulation of choir boys, quite frankly you know, and altar boys and how, again, they were asked to work for their spiritual teacher. And I'm not blaming this on the religion, but it's very hard to have that dynamic and not have a power play, which is definitely the topic of another one of our (laughs) podcasts. Podcast number five, taking notes right now, Pooja. (laughs) (laughs) But just throwing that out there, right? It's, 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 you know, there's very little interest in the people who have power to regulate themselves having power. And you and I were talking about social justice work, right? So part-time what I do is social consulting work. And part of that is racial justice. And I had somebody recently, she was a white woman who's been in HR for 25 years. And she looked at me as a person of color and said, I want you to charge what you're worth because understand that when people are hiring you, who are mainly white men, they're hiring you to keep themselves in positions of power. Oh. And it's hard for me to see how this doesn't apply to our regulatory organizations, not just in yoga, but in wellness and fitness in every single industry. Yes. Oh, a thousand percent. Yes to that. You couldn't be more right. She couldn't be more right. And in this idea that you can train somewhere and then go to work for your spiritual teacher, the yoga lines could stop that with a snap of their fingers. 
Yeah, they really could. So Yoga Lines, if you're listening, I want you to just talk to me and Pooja. <laughs> I want you to go through and see if you feel like it is ethical for our teachers to learn and then go to work for their sacred spiritual teachers, because a lot of this gets messy and nasty when that happens. Absolutely. But let's shift to Kripalu. Uh, Pooja, can you tell me a little bit more about Kripalu? Yeah, Kripalu, I, I trained there. That was my first teacher training, and I very much appreciate the teachers there. But again, there's bureaucracy with the organization, and there's a dark side of the organization, which hasn't really been addressed. So one of the things to start with is just the hourly wage. So I have friends who are teachers there or who have applied to teach regular classes. there, not teacher trainings, but regular classes. And I was shocked to hear that the salary range is $25 to $35 per hour. At one of the biggest yoga institutes in the entire country. For those of you who don't know, Kripalu is like the Harvard (laughs) in terms of both endowment and in terms of educational level, reputation, all of these factors, right? So it's located in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, which is up in the Berkshires. And though in a way it's pretty remote from New York and Boston, it also is not the cheapest place to live because it is a vacation area for folks from Boston and from New York. And even living in DC, which is an expensive city, but nonetheless, I'm an hour outside of it. When I started applying for jobs here, teaching yoga, teaching about fascia, teaching about other things, one organization offered me $40 per hour. And they said, we are so sorry, but we can only pay entry level wages. And that was $40 per hour. So this just boggles my mind. I. It boggled my mind when you told me this, like when you texted me this and then I went in my, a group of humans who are yoga teachers and, and we run our, we're in the same business program together. And somebody had said, how much is industry average if you go to teach at a studio? And I said, well, Kapalu pays <laughs> this and this is why we can't have nice things. This is why we can't have nice things. Yeah. And you have some money stats here on Kripalu that I, I think our audience is going to be interested in. Absolutely. So like you, I looked at the 990s. So one thing that Rebecca left off about 990s is that 990s are specifically nonprofit or charitable organizations' financial statements because they are government regulated and government mandated, right? And an interesting statistic I found from the Nonprofit Times and the National Council of Nonprofits is that 92% of nonprofits have annual budgets of less than 1 million. So when Rebecca talks about Yoga Alliance having 15 million, that's a 15-year budget. It's not you can't compare it to the Fortune 500s or corporations. Nonprofit is a different sector. So what I found when I was geeking out on this 990, and the latest one I could find was 2019, because they haven't updated information since then, at least not on Candid or any other independent review sites, was that they had 37 million in revenue in 990, in, in 2019, excuse me, they had 34 million in expenses, of which 
roughly half of that, 17 million, is just for ground maintenance and maintaining the property. So I'm not sure if they have a mortgage or if they have a lease, but any payments on the property and ground maintenance, maintenance, just beautifying the property. That's half of it. And the other 17 million is salaries and compensation. So one thing that 990s have is that they have to disclose the highest earners at any particular nonprofit. Of that 17 million, 2 million alone was compensation for the top 11 people. So this is a back of the envelope calculation because it doesn't give me all the details, but the back of the envelope educated calculation was that the other 600 employees, if you take the remaining 15 million, they earn 25,000 on average, which is not livable in the Berkshires and not livable for large parts of this country. So this organization with 37 million in revenue, and depending on the year, it varies from 37 to 43 to 50 maybe even 60 pre-COVID, is only paying their teachers, who are the draw, who are bringing students, who are having them spend thousands of dollars on these retreats and these teacher trainings and those programs, they're only earning about 25000 a year. That's, <laughs> I mean, I, that's just mind-boggling to me. So let me do the math for anyone listening if you weren't taking notes. That's that's Kripalu running at about a $3 million profit. So it certainly seems to me, I would hope that you could spend a little bit more money on your teachers. Do you happen to know if they're still running at that $3 million profit, Pooja? I don't because more recent 990s weren't available, which was worrisome to me because even though organizations have been tested and stretched their limits during COVID, they should be regularly updating those financial documents for the government because that's how they qualify for their nonprofit status. And I found it very odd when I went there, they had a slogan and let me see if I can remember it correctly, because to me it was donor supported mission oriented, which I found really odd. And, and forgive me um, if I'm misquoting this, but when they say, oh, sorry, it's I reversed it. It's mission-driven donor-supported. And I thought it was really funny that they put that on all of their leaflets and in their dining room and in other places because, duh, that's the definition of a nonprofit. By, <laughs> I mean, like a nonprofit really should be gaining most of their money from grants, right? And those grants can be government grants. Those can be individual charitable donations. So I have a nonprofit that is 90 plus percent driven by program revenue. That's how much money people are paying to attend programs. It makes me ponder, are you really a nonprofit organization? Are you really supposedly a charity? Ooh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 I, and I will say to Kripalu, if you're listening to this, one, give me a call. Two, please let me continue to teach at Kripalu, right? <laughs> and I think it's funny that I say that because one thing that Rebecca said to me, and I'm going to use her quote, but it was just really powerful, was that when you have people who are making 10K a year, or I'll say even 20K a year if they're lucky, because that's the vast majority of yoga teachers, when you're saying to them, hey, maybe you should respect yoga, maybe you should respect another culture, maybe you should act ethically, their response is, I need to eat, eat one thing at a time. And that's why I'm telling Kripalu, I would still like to work there because the truth is, I still need to eat. And how do I operate ethically within all that's going on? 
So, ooh, yeah. So you've you've brought up the crux of the question, right? How do we operate ethically? Because to me, and I've said this to a billion people, and I think I just said this in the last 20 minutes to you, Pooja, is that I can't fix capitalism. Like I have a lot of ambition. I sleep well at night. I have a lot of energy, but I can't fix capitalism. But what I can do is be in the industry to radically redistribute the wealth amongst those humans who are within the industry. And Kripalu, I think, is an amazing, an amazing example of ways where you could run numbers and redistribute some of the wealth in a way that actually probably wouldn't pinch the humans at the top too much and still offer living wages for the humans who are at the bottom of that pyramid. And we can do this if we challenge people to think about money and income in that way. Absolutely. I absolutely agree. Because a lot of these problems we're seeing in the yoga industry, if you really look at them and why problems, I mean, just tip of the iceberg here, right? Low unlivable wages, which in a way is financial exploitation, um, deterioration of the quality of yoga, right? Yoga teachers not actually teaching excellent yoga or great yoga because they're stressed out because they're running to 15 classes a week. And also these loss of traditions, like the philosophy of yoga, the fact that we can turn yoga into stretching and ignore the entire history of it because we don't have time when we're doing all these classes and we're not being paid enough. But if you really look at these problems, so much of that is just caused by this financial stress. And if we do it, what Rebecca is saying, and we really look at how these organizations that have a lot of funds what could they do to support those yoga teachers making little money? What could they do to support the entire industry? I think they really could drive a huge, huge, huge change in all of these areas. Yeah. I mean, we have this advantage in the yoga industry. I feel for those of us who have truly attempted to steep ourselves in the tradition of yoga and the philosophy of yoga, even an entire industry of humans who understand what it is to live in a non-harming way, what it is to live in a truthful way, to not steal. Like we've done so much of the background work to set us up to, for me to say, and you to say, let's redistribute the wealth amongst the industry. Let's go get the money from the few who have a lot and redistribute it to the many. Like today, let's go do that. Absolutely. I'm totally with you. Yes. T-shirts and flags. We're on our way. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we are. (laughs) Okay. So let's talk. I mean, you referenced about um, barely paying their bills, like this idea of, and I've thought of this many times, like sometimes teachers have to say yes to the beer yoga class that pays them $150 an hour or $200 an hour, like and say no to doing the social justice work that is important to both of us, Pooja, but you're that, that is your area of expertise. And like, how do you see that shifting in our industry? (laughs) It's so tied into the finances. That's in a way that's really difficult because I will tell you that even though I talk about cultural appropriation. And I talk about cultural appreciation and respecting the roots of yoga and respecting the traditions. There were times earlier in my life where I did do those classes, not the beer yoga classes, but classes that I felt really weren't teaching what yoga is. 
that was really diluting the practice. And it's only been in recent years that I've really held firm and started drawing those lines of what is crossing my lines morally or ethically. But I do think that's difficult when yoga is your full-time job. So what I am going to say, and I'm sorry to everyone for whom yoga is a full-time job, that includes me as well. <laughs> and I, I am honestly transitioning transitioning out of that full-time status because I think the love for it goes when it gets caught up in, quite frankly, the predatory capitalism we are experiencing in our society, right? So the more that we can rely on other sources of income, I think that takes away some of the pressure. And I think that what you mentioned earlier, redistributing the wealth, right? There have been times when I've wanted to take on certain students and they just couldn't afford to pay for classes. And depending on my business, because as a small business owner, my income varies extremely. <laughs> it fluctuates. <laughs> it fluctuates on a day-to-day or week-to-week or even month-to-month basis. Even as somebody who's well-known, my income fluctuates all the time. So depending on how my income is doing, there are times when I can provide scholarships and can take people at a much lower cost. And there's other times where they have to fit within the sliding scale I already have. So I really want to shout out to those organizations like Reclamation Ventures. Uh, That's one that uh, Melissa Shaw, who is a powerhouse in in the yoga world, you should definitely check her out. Um, She supports that organization or even ABCD Yogi with uh, Tejal and Jessel. And there are starting to be other organizations like that, which are truly providing those scholarships for those folks who are most marginalized, not just the folks who are not just those folks who are students, but also teachers, which brings me to one of my favorite things that you do, <laughs> which is and I, which is Quad Cities, right? And like, I'd love if you could tell people about what Quad Cities does, because I think it really, if you could replicate it to the entire country, it would solve this income issue. We are attempting to build the exact bridge that Pooja highlighted, honestly. So the Quad Cities Yoga Foundation is a nonprofit organization that I co-founded and I am the current board president of. And we, I noticed in our community that yoga teachers had to do exactly what you said, Pooja, had to say no to the work that was lighting them up with the humans who couldn't afford to pay them in order to say yes to the classes that paid their bills. And what I know to be true is that the overwhelming majority of yoga humans want to do good work and are good people. So we fundraise to pay yoga teachers to work in the communities that need us. Um, Right now we're on a big five-year plan to be able to train teachers of and for the communities that need yoga the most humans who are bilingual humans who are in the queer community humans who are in the BIPOC community and we are building those bridges so that we can redistribute the wealth as best as we can and there's a thousand good ways to be a good human and build service into your business models if you're a yoga professional out there listening this is just one of my ways and Pooja mentioned another she has sliding scale that is another way we can do this. I I believe that we can do this. Honestly, if you took your model everywhere, 
that would be amazing. And just to come full circle, right? Just to come full circle, how amazing would it be if those big organizations, right? The Kripalus of the world, the Omegas, the Esalens, the Yoga Alliances, maybe even Yoga Unify, all of these organizations, IAYT, what if they were the ones using their profits, using their large asset base to help fund these programs in every community? Because every community has folks who could benefit from yoga and has teachers who could benefit from a little bit more pay, not just with those higher paying clients, but with all clients, right? Or even with those higher paying clients, I'm going to say, because a lot of times higher paying clients still don't pay the bills. So I really think that's. That's, that's our ask for you, Kripalu, and that's our ask for you, Yoga Alliance, right? Can you step in and lead the way? Because I think that's what the yoga industry re- needs right now. Yeah, we're going to end there because that was amazing, Pooja. We, yes, thank you so much. Go listen to Pooja, my friends. She's wise and says good things. And Please, if you have links in major organizations that have funds to redistribute, email them, email us. Let's let's make this happen because I believe in us. I believe in us too. Thank you so much for coming on for the first of the Puja Chronicles. <laughs> thank you for having me, Rebecca. <laughs> and thank you all so much for listening to Working in Yoga. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you again, Pooja, for this conversation. Um, I'm so looking forward to hearing everybody's thoughts about yoga professional organizations, specifically the Yoga Alliance, what you thought about what we shared about Kripalu. And I do think this conversation maybe makes both Pooja and I a little bit more nervous than some of our other conversations, but I'm really excited to hear all of y'all's thoughts. So go ahead and head to finding me on Instagram at Rebecca Sebastian Yoga. You can drop a comment about what you thought. You can always send me a message. You can head to workinginyoga.com if you want to listen to more episodes or support the work that I'm doing on the podcast. Now, next week is another episode with my first repeat guest, Secret Streep. And Secret is my friend who also runs a yoga studio in the Dakotas, in South Dakota. And I am really excited to catch up with Secret over the past year because she was on last summer, see how her experience was in the 2021-2022 time with um, owning a yoga studio. And Secret has a special announcement to share for us. So I will see you all next week. And thanks so much. Bye.